Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Travis Brown, welcome back to Cycling in Alignment. Hey, Colby. I think we're setting a record. I think you're my first guest who's been on three times. Awesome. So. That must mean I didn't cock it up too bad. <laughs> it means you've got interesting things to say. Yeah, we we managed to run down some pretty interesting, nerdy topic pathways. So Definitely. That turns into a good podcast, even better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, painting the scene here, we're sitting in Travis's living room. Got a fire going. It's a snowy night. We got a little Argentinian red just to drop. And um, we're going to talk today about Niels Vanderpool's disclosure of his training methods, how to skate a 10K and also a half 10K, which he released after he won the 5,000 and 10,000 meter Olympic gold medals in Beijing in 2022. Yeah, I think it turns out to be one of the most interesting narratives from the games, particularly because of his training log afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's so rare for you know, someone who's, I think, experienced that level of success, two gold medals, world records, to then divulge every single detail about how they did it. Yep. I agree. I think uh, it's one of the most interesting and one of the coolest things about this. Like, I'll admit that I'm not really a fan of too many sports people very often, but this guy's impressed me um, because he did this. He, he wrote this training manifesto, which details everything of the last two and a half years going into his Olympic gold medals. That's very unusual. I think there's a perception in sport that everyone, that athletes or coaches have secrets. And of course they do have secrets sometimes, but usually those secrets are illegal methods. Um, <laughs> but assuming that everyone's playing fairly, there aren't really any secrets. I mean, there may be moments in sporting history when a coach or an athlete like figure something else out that no one else has figured out and then they apply it and they have an advantage for a short period of time. And of course that can happen in cycling with equipment, but, and it can happen in running with super shoes or whatever, but really like most, the vast, vast majority of athletics, there are no secrets. It's just hard work and doing the things. So what I love about the transparency of this is that he's basically saying like, look, this is what I did just because you know what I did doesn't mean you can do it. Right. But, and it seems like that evolved over his career. Like yeah. he has, he has a tremendous amount of confidence one to do a program mm-hmm. that's that unique. Yep. I don't know a lot about speed skating, but this is clearly different from what most speed skaters, speed, do. Caters, speed skaters do. Yeah. Um, you know, and to tailor it to, to himself and to have the confidence to say, all right, you know, I can do my own analysis of my sport and come to some unique conclusions that are a little bit outside of the culture mm-hmm. and try them Yep, and stick to it. So yep. really open, really courageous, mm-hmm. just a great story. Yeah. A great story. I agree. Um, so maybe I was thinking we could, we could go through some key takeaways. Like what is it about you that impressed what is it about this program, this this training manifesto that really struck you, aside from the fact that it was so open and detailed? Well, I think a big part of it is obviously how much he trains on a bike. Mm-hmm. You know, and even for a professional cyclist, it's the volume is really high. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously that's why the story got published in cycling publications mm -hmm. and I, you know, it just made it interesting for all, for cyclists for sure. Yeah. And I think it also made us all wonder like, oh, maybe I could have been a great speed skater, you know? <laughs> maybe it made some people wonder, like, maybe I'm not training anywhere near enough. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it made a lot of people wonder that because yeah. it's going to be the rare, even the rare driven professional that's doing, you know, volumes on the bike that the speed skater's doing. Yeah. But that said, that, that breaks out into an interesting point that I think we need to be careful about. Neil specifically talks in his training manifesto about the fact that he went all in on these events and he focused on a very particular aspect. So he broke, in case you haven't read the document, we'll talk briefly about it <clears throat> and then I'll put links in the show notes for it and you can go find it. It's if you Google, if you, if you just search how to skate a 10 K by Niels, that's N I L S Vanderpool, you'll find it. Uh, it's pretty widely available, but I'll put a link in the show notes so people can check it out. If you haven't read it, it's definitely, if you're an endurance athlete, I believe it's absolutely worth reading, but he goes all in on these events. So in case you also aren't familiar with skating, a 5k for him, it was about six minutes. And that's obviously world, that's world record pace, or it was just over six minutes. And it was about 12 and a half minutes for him at the world record pace when he won the gold medal. So it gives you an idea of the duration of the event. And most of the months that he's training, he's doing 72 hours of training, 80 hours, 87 hours, 73 hours, 84 hours. And it depends a little bit on where he is in his program, 93 hours. But he talks openly about how he heavily, heavily invested in this four-phase program, which was broken into these chunks. The first one was aerobic. He called it aerobic endurance or something like that, the aerobic phase. The second was threshold. The third was something like race, race speed. speed or specificity. And then there was aerobic 2.0. And that was his periodization of his year. And he speaks openly in the program about how his explosivity came was was deliberately butchered in this program because he was so um, focused on building his aerobic engine like to a massive amount. I mean, he's riding his bike for seven hours a day, five days a week. Right. You know, the 30 hour week, even if you're riding all the days is such a load. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can, I could probably count on one hand, the number of 30 hour weeks that I did in my racing career. Me too. So, um, you know, that's kind of extreme and interesting in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, it, and the fact that he rode that much, ran that much and yep. skated that little. Yep has to be a complete anomaly within the world of speed skating. Mm -hmm. It has to be. And I think, but I think that's a really important part of his program is what he says in the, in the philosophy of the document, he talks about how aerobic training, he looked at it as just aerobic training and to build the aerobic base, as long as it was a similar activity, obviously he wasn't going to do like, you know, hand walking for 30 hours a week or something like that, mm -hmm. or something super dissimilar from his sport. But he said, as long as he was running or cycling, they were close enough to where when he was building up his aerobic base, it didn't matter. And this goes to the simple concept of periodization, which is the further away you are from your event, the less sport specific you can be. So he invested in that. And, and he also talks about how he didn't have guaranteed ice time during a lot of his year, which is a little bit surprising perhaps. But then I also equate that to track cycling where we don't always have guaranteed velodrome time, right? Like having track time is it's actually a pretty precious commodity and not all national teams have a velodrome for their national program and 
sometimes it's in an obtuse place or you don't live in the US, you know, we have one tracked international standard and you have to fly to LA and be there. And then the road riding is crap and you have all these challenges, right? So I suppose, you know, a, a, a skater who was a world champion in 2014 and had already attended one Olympic games, he still doesn't have guaranteed ice time 365. And so right. instead of trying to struggle to find that venue and get squeak out an hour here or two hours there or whatever you may be able to get, he said, I'm just going to ignore that problem, keep it, keep the program really simple and focus on the volume during the first phase. So I think there's a really beautiful simplicity in that, like letting go of that sort of hang up that you have to be doing exactly that. And again, that may not work for everyone. Right. And I, yeah, I think like it shows, it shows that he takes a, a, a it's an overused word, but a holistic approach to his training. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, this, what fits in my life because of the availability of skate availability of skating time. Mm -hmm. And also because I think the stuff that he likes to do, like he clearly really likes to ride and likes yep. to trail run. Yep. Um, so he made a program that fits what he likes. And you, I mean, if you're going to do that kind of training, that volume of training, that specificity of training that, I mean, he's, he, he terms it this way, that monotonous of a program mm -hmm. and stay motive and stay motivated. It has to be some stuff that you like. Yep. Um, it's clear that there are, you know, I think we think like physical talent, you know, is, well, you gotta have the physical talent and that's what you start with to become an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, and, and I guess it plays into the physical talent, but I would say one, you have to have a deep, deep drive mm -hmm. to train, to do the training load, to get you to the top. And then you have to be able to digest and absorb and process that training load without getting injured. Right. Like those are two things that all of the best athletes in, in any of, you know, the sports we're familiar with. They all have that, mm -hmm. um, you know, how you get there according to this model is mm -hmm. not that important. Right. Right. You know? It could be a circuitous path. Yeah. 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 And I think that's one of the most important takeaways for me from this entire program is, and this reading is that what I love about it is I think I always make this statement. I try not to imagine what other people are thinking or try not to tell myself that I know what other people are thinking. But from the conversations I've had with a lot of athletes and interactions I've had over my coaching career, it seems to me that there might be a common thread of belief among amateur athletes that in order to be an elite level athlete or a pro or an Olympic medalist or even Olympian, that you have to basically become more monk-like and more committed and more disciplined. Right. And it's unquestionable that Niels has an amazing amount of discipline and drive, right? But what I love about this document is that he expressly communicates and is very open and honest about how he's also smart enough to know that he's a human and he can't train seven days a week for six months at a time. And that's unrealistic. So what he did is a five, two training plan where every week he trained for five days straight and that was his job. And then he took two days completely off. No training and at all. No training at all. Socialized. Went and hung out with his friends. If he wanted to go on a hike, they did, but it wasn't part of training. If they wanted to go bowling or drink beers or whatever, they did those things. And he had a normal life. And that allowed him to counterbalance the other incredibly hard days of work he was doing. And it was like a reward. And I think that was super vital to his program is the fact that he recognized that he's not a monk and that he doesn't want to live like that. And there's a really um, brilliant quote that I 
select that I'd like to read from his document here. So it's about that concept of life sport balance. He says, creating value outside the ice rink decreased the value of sport in my life as a teenager. Uh, and uh, sorry, in my life as a teenager, the sport meant everything to me, which I do not believe is a good thing. And initially my ambition, ambitions with it. I was very distracted by the multifaceted lifestyle of mine up until the 20,000, 2018 Olympic games. But as it became clear to me why and how I wanted to skate, I learned to handle the distractions. I learned to apply discipline and it made me free. I think that's a really important concept. And this is something, um, Jocko Willing talks about a lot is, is discipline equals freedom, which is a bit of a paradox initially until you really think about it. The more disciplined you are in some aspects, the more freedom you have in others, right? And th that is definitely a paradoxical statement, but if you think about it, there's a lot of truth in it. So after learning how to master discipline, the meaning I created in my life outside of my sport no longer distracted me. Instead, it made me comfortable with the idea of losing. And so speed skating became much more relaxed and a lot more fun. Like that whole, that couple sentences I think is brilliant. Yeah. It's, it seems like he went through a transition of finding the insight of how much energy he was giving to this anxiety that he had about mm -hmm. the sport, how much, how he made it more important than it actually is. Yes. Um, and back to that idea that amateur athletes, when they look at professional athletes, you know, they're, we're kind of steeped in this, no pain, no gain, like whoever works the hardest, yes, you know, wins and acknowledge that that the, the top athletes, you know, the champions, that the ones that really end up being known, get gold medals, they, their training regimen is extreme. They work really hard. But it doesn't mean there's not balance there. Yes. They still have boundaries. It's mm -hmm. not just continue to go and go and go and go. It's still yep. at the end is a really fine balance between not doing just enough, not too much. Mm -hmm. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. And that's what I was getting at. I think that a lot of amateurs sort of maybe imagine that all the athletes at the very, very top of the sport, you know, the, the great Thomas's or Chris Frooms or whoever, you know, the Tom Pickock's that they live this monastic lifestyle mm -hmm. and that they have no, no pleasure whatsoever. They never drink a beer, you know, for months on end. And, you know, there probably are some athletes like that. Like I remember reading Sean Kelly's book. He talks about how chocolate was something he only had in the off season, like months of no chocolate. He also talked about how he only had sex in the off season with his wife. Now that could also be because he was racing 120 times a year. <laughs> like <laughs> if you're gone all the time. You're not going to be in your bed with your wife very much. But, um, so there are, there are people who subscribe to that belief of that, you know, extremely myopic focused lifestyle, but I don't think for most people that's sustainable. And I also think it's a bit of an error in judgment for an, an amateur to assume that the only way they'll get better is to be more like that, right? Right. I, I think it's a useful lesson for everyone at all levels of sport that we have to recognize there's a tension between the amount of motivation and drive we have to perform our sport or work out hard or whatever, and that tension and then counterbalancing that with, you know, life activities, things you want to go hang out with your friends and forget about sport and be less focused. Yeah. And that's okay. But when you're focused, be focused. When you're hanging out, hang out. That's, I think, the takeaway. Yeah, I, th I think it shines a spotlight on... The, the liabilities of our, our reductionist culture, like mm -hmm. how we want to break everything down into a really neat category so that we can understand it better. And 
what follows from that, like if you're looking at an athlete and human, like is that your athletic life exists outside the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And he makes it really clear that, that energy is a net sum game. He acknowledges that when something's going wrong personally, and he has this optimized week of training, you know, very intense training, mm -hmm. he needs to back it off or things are going to go sour. Yep. Um, yeah, that's one of the things the most impressive about this article. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Um, and I make that point a lot to my athletes that all stress summates, right? It's yeah, not, exactly. you, you don't measure the fight you had with your girlfriend or the um, poor night of sleep you had in your performance management chart, right? All that measures is your TSS on your ride, which is a function of how hard you went and how long you went. That's it. So it only focuses on, on your cycling performance. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess in, you know, how, as, as busy as culture pushes us to be, you know, it is a little bit monastic if you take actually the time to, to prepare and train and recover, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that's a lot of discipline in to fit in with a, um, a normal life, a social life, mm -hmm. all the things that, I mean, I would think are an imperative to be able to follow a training program like this. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a brilliant new map to, to creating training mm -hmm. with a lot of extra freedom kind of, kind of, as you mentioned. Right. Right. Yeah. So he continues in the long term, the meaning I created apart from my sport made me like my sport more because suddenly it enriched my life rather than limiting it. And I think that's a key perspective. I mean, that's goes right along with what we're saying. Instead of viewing sport as this thing that prevents you from doing the other things you might want to do with your life, drink beer or hang out with your friends or go for a hike or, or whatever, um, or just sleep all day. Uh, instead of viewing it that way, it's a thing that actually can complement those normal human activities. It also made me more determined to work hard because training was not my last resort. It was my voluntary choice endured at my, at my own conditions. And that I think is also a very insightful statement because I think psychologically, a lot of athletes sort of somehow there's this logic error that happens. Well, this happened in my own mind. Again, I won't speak for other people's brains, but there was a certain part of me that sort of um, signed up for bike racing. Or if you believe what Mike Creed says, he talks about how he didn't even really pick cycling. Cycling kind of chose him. It was like it just landed in his lap and suddenly he was a bike racer. And I feel that way for sure, uh, looking back on my young adventures as a bike racer. But once that sort of adventure started, it was like you're going over a waterfall and you were just in it. And there were just things you had to endure or do. And they just sort of were like accepted, like, well, you have to do long rides and you have to do intervals and you have to go train and you have to kind of always keep up and, and try to be at the limit as Niels mentions that term in the, in the article, be at the limit. And that perception can feel like a weight on your shoulders, that pressure to always be as fit as possible and always be pushing. And as soon as you're recovered, if you're not going hard or you're not tired or you're not smashed, then you're doing it wrong, right? Or you're falling behind. Or even the way, like the language you use that you have to do it. Right. Yeah. That's, rather than, it's an onus rather than a yeah, choice. Yeah. Right. You have to do it if you want to get to this level rather than. If you want to get to this level, you choose, you choose to, do to do it. Yeah. That's a very different way to phrase your athletic journey. Yeah. And that's, I mean, this guy's only 25 and 
he's got a lot of wisdom in this document. That's why yeah, I think it's pretty sure. cool. Yeah. I, I remember one when he was talking about the five two program mm -hmm. and being able to socialize with his friends and how important that part of creating that balance was to staying motivated and staying on track and having a life that you're enjoying. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he says, I take two days off completely and I go and go out to the pub with my friends and I have a beer or six beers, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's funny. And yeah. you know, it's, it makes the point, like you got to not feel like it's a huge burden or you're never going to keep the motivation to, mm -hmm. to take a, the load of training that this guy does. The massive load. Yeah. 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 That's what's so brilliant and balanced about it. Right. Then the last sentence that I, um, wanted to quote from this is a continuation of that thought. He says, after all, I didn't get to decide whether or not I would win the Olympics, but I did decide if I wanted to compete in a hundred mile ultra or not. So in his aerobic endurance training cycle, he did think he rode his bike, but he also did some hundred mile ultra runs and some other stuff. And he talks in the document about how he only cried once after a race and when, and it was when he finished a hundred mile run, which I mean, I've thought about that. Like I have some friends who've done hundred mile runs. I mean, to me, that's pretty inconceivable. I don't know if I could finish a hundred mile run even yeah, now. It's extreme. It's, it's like 25 or 30 or 40 hours of running. Like, yeah. I don't know if my body can handle that. Well, that's another thing that speaks to his durability. His durability. I yes. Mean, not only like the volume on the bike to be able to absorb that is it's extremely impressive. Yep. The amount of threshold work, like when he goes into the, the intensity phase, like that's really impressive. Yeah. And like in his high volume to be doing seven hour bike rides and then, well, I'm going to do, I did 10 hour trail run, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And yeah. to transfer back somebody like that. that can, can soak up that kind of training. Yep. You know, we can't say they're going to always be an Olympic champion, but like, right. Right. They have the potential to be the top, top of, mm -hmm. of a lot of different sports probably. Yep. Yep. And that's a super important point about this program. When you, if you read this document and then you look over his training log, which this is also what's cool about it. It's not just a detailed account of his entire training program written out in sentence form. He actually publishes his training log, which is just an Excel spreadsheet for two and a half years with comments, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. But when you look at it, you see the volume he's doing. It's astounding. I mean, that's the thing that impresses me is he, this guy is obviously biomechanically an extremely durable athlete. Like, yeah. and there are many, most athletes I know, the vast majority would just crumble under this amount of load. Yeah. They would just crumble. Yeah. Joint inflammation, yes. fatigue, sickness, like yep. all of those things that prevent you from stressing your body to get a desired reaction of, yeah. you know, yeah. the best fitness in the world. Yep. And he opens the document talking about a, a debate he's having or discussion he has with his friend about whether or not the hard work got him the gold medals or whether it was the talent. And he says, my friend thinks it was the talent. I, I clearly think for me, it's pretty obvious as it was both. You can't just win a gold medal on talent alone. I mean, perhaps in other sports you can, but probably not in this day and age. You've got to put hard work and training behind that, that talent and back it up, right? And this is what he did. So in the talent checklist, you know, we tend to think of talent as frequently, you know, I tend to think of talent, I'll say, 
as you know, high VO2 or a high threshold or high capacity to deal with pain maybe, or maybe we put in the checkbox of someone who's really driven and we call that talent. I would also consider in this case, some of his biggest talents are his biomechanical durability, his ability to just exercise for 35 hours a week for weeks on end. Right. And you build up such a massive aerobic engine that then by the time you add threshold, which when he got to his threshold phase, he was doing two hours of threshold a day, four by 30. Like, okay, I, I don't think I've ever done that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. properly at threshold. I've done four by 30. Not voluntarily. I but mean, yeah. Stuff like that probably reproduces from certain races you do. From an endurance you know, mountain heart, bike race. Heart race, heart yeah. rate in those zones. But mm -hmm. would you ever volunteer, voluntarily do it? Like, in training? That's as extreme to mm -hmm. me. That seems as extreme as the volume. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't think most bike racers think that way or train that way. Um, and again, I wouldn't argue that they should because it's really important to remember that his event is fundamentally a six-minute time trial and about a 12-and-a-half-minute time trial, right? right? Now, Which to us, you know, seems incredibly short. Incredibly short, but what he was doing was preparing his aerobic engine to be as durable as possible so that then when he did the intensity he needed, he could repeat that intensity at a super high level over and over again and not fall apart. I mean, that's fundamentally what he did. But the interesting, the part that's not applicable to most cyclists is that our sport, most of the time, unless you're preparing for an hour record or hill climb, most of the time, our sport requires moments of glycolytic power, which mean acceleration, change in pace. And so physiologically, he really ignored the glycolytic system. And he talks also openly in the document about how his starts and his explosive power suffered tremendously. And even in the 5K, he barely, like he was down until the last lap, right? right? Yeah. He was really in second, third place at three to go, two, second place at two to go. And then he only pulled ahead in the last lap. So arguably he barely pulled that off. That event was as short as it could have possibly been and had a successful outcome with the program he endured. Right. If it was a five minute race, he would probably wouldn't have won. We could imagine because there's too much anaerobic energy contribution to a five minute effort. Six is like the absolute shortest, but then in the 10 K he destroyed the world record because his aerobic base was so big. He was way ahead of the next competitor. I think second was 10 or 12 seconds behind him. If I remember right, I don't know that could be wrong. Yeah, about the I, results, I know. I recall we watched his heat. Yep. You know, the bronze medalist was, I think, almost 13 seconds down. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's, you can, it can be a second, under a second in the 10K mm -hmm. for the yep. podium. Right. And I think that's way more common. Yeah. So that's cool. So his, his mechanical, his biomechanical durability, meaning the durability, the ability for him to generate force, skating, cycling, and running without having knee problems, back problems. He did have a bunch of ankle problems. He had a pelvic injury. I mean, he had some injuries they dealt with, but in spite of those, he was still able to train this tremendous amount. And so that speaks to, that's a form of talent. And not every athlete has that type of talent. The other part of his durability, I think is worth mentioning, is when you're training 35 hours a week, you eat an insane amount of food. And that means that by definition, you have to have a really, really healthy and durable gut biome. Because when you eat, like there's a, there's a reciprocal relationship between the amount of calories you eat and the quality of the food. You're not going to be eating organic spinach when you're eating 7,000 calories a day. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And you can't get that volume in your mouth. <laughs> you, can, you literally can't. You have to eat stuff that's more calorically dense, which means by definition, probably crappier in most cases. 
And also there's just convenience and cost, right? So he talks about eating, you know, donuts and cookies and all these things on his rides. And, and there's a point when you just have to get the calories in. I heard a really interesting interview with Lachlan Morton recently. And the guy, the interviewer asked him like, you know, do you have any diet considerations? Are you like, you know, vegetarian or gluten-free or anything? And Lachlan was like, I can't be, it's not an option. He's like, when you're riding across France by yourself, you're literally eating gas station food. You're eating whatever is at the gas station and you need so many calories a day. It's not like I can go searching for an organic restaurant. Like that would have, would have done me in. And he does so many events of that caliber. So the more riding you do, the more calories you have to go in. And there's an old saying, the hotter you burn the fire, the more you can throw almost anything in there. Right. But there's also another concept, which is that the choices you make for short-term health are not necessarily, or excuse me, let me rephrase that. The choices you make for short-term athletic performance are not always congruent with long-term health, no, right? Totally. And that's another like misconception about professional athletics, that those are, you know, they're the best in their sport. They perform the best in whatever their specialization is. And they're also the healthiest people. Like, <laughs> yeah, that you know, exercising or training or your lifestyle, everything that goes into your lifestyle to become the best in your sport and everything that goes into your lifestyle to be as healthy a person as you can. Yeah. Like those two spaces have a pretty small overlap. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and I think there's a pretty common idea mm -hmm. that they're the same thing and they're so yeah. not the same. They're thing. not the same thing. Not well, I would say that the more elite the athlete is, the more divergent those two paths become, right? Or the less overlap there is right, in the Venn right. diagram. However, um, I'll say that over the long term, in order to keep performing as an athlete, the more overlap is needed, right? Well, when you're on the limit of what you can do all the time, yeah, then you, I think you, hopefully, you get sensitized to that nuance of of more balance mm -hmm. and how health then can reflect race performance. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, you know, generally, you know, health is not your ambition when you're a driven athlete. Right. Performance in performances. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. I think I struggled with that as an athlete. I think I'm too much of a hippie. Like health is really important to me. And it's just always been one of my driving sub programs. And there are times when that came at the cost of some of my athletic performance because I would get hung up on the fact that we were eating like TGI Fridays or something. And I'd go, this is shit food. I don't want to eat this. Like, and everyone else would be like, dude, get over it. We got to race tomorrow. And I, I had this hiccup in my head about it. I'm quite certain of that. Yeah. I don't think that made me very popular with some of my teammates. You just, you just gotta charge through it. Just gotta carve the fuck up and yeah. eat your blooming onion or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> But I'm also like, I'm not Niels. I don't have a super, super robust biome. I don't know if it's because he grew up in Sweden and probably had a healthier diet as a kid, less refined foods or less processed foods. I had about 10 years where I ate absolute garbage, like literally Tostino's pizzas and Hostess fruit pies for yeah. a decade. And that probably wrecked me. And I'm still to this day crawling out of that hole and I'm healthier now than ever. But that, so that made me more sensitive to when we did go to some crappy restaurant and I ate some food, a lot of my teammates were like, yeah, no big deal. Let's go race. And I felt like I was dragging a tree stump behind me for the rest of the day. Yeah. That's an, another 
bottomless question is like as as athletes what are childhood lifestyle yeah. during that development phase because everyone has a theory about it <laughs> you know well if you're going to be an endurance athlete then you got to gestate you know 10,000 feet and then you know, like <laughs> i remember the the sports scientist at the otc talking about all that you know when they're testing you yeah like oh yeah we figured out exactly how like the how how to have a kid that's that's going to be an olympian like, oh man i hope you never have kids <laughs> <laughs> yep um <laughs> so another part i thought was really interesting this is a little detail from the document that i pulled but his warm-up routine before his skate sessions and before competition was 19 minutes long and super precise very precise very like so this is a concept I try to get across to my athletes frequently, which is minimum effective dose, right? And he he titles one of his chapters, uh, the aerobic phase of his training, he says more, when more is more. And that's his logic. And he actually says in the document that basically if, uh, I think he, he makes an assumption, assuming you're healthy and you're eating enough, it's impossible to do aerobic training and overtrain someone. Now that's from his perspective. He's 180 pounds, six feet tall, and obviously has really good knees and a lower back and good biomechanics. Like he makes force when he pushes down on a pedal or the ground to run or pedal, or pedal a bike or skate. He does it with even pressure on the feet, which may sound like a detail that's really trivial, but biomechanically, the implications are that his core is working properly. His breath pattern is proper, right? He's recruiting all the muscles that descend down from there to the foot in a relatively proper order and timing and sequence and amplitude. And then he can, that means he can do thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of repetitions without going, Hey, why does my IT band hurt? Or why does my knee tracking screwed right. up? Or why do oh. I have condomalacia? All those off ramps. Yes. All those off ramps. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, but the warm up, that's, so that's more is more maximum dose. But then he also applies minimum effective dose in his warm up is the good example of that. So it's a 19 minute warm up. It was five minutes at 200 watts, six minutes at 260 watts, three by 30 seconds at 400 watts with 30 seconds rest, which 400 watts is his threshold. And then two minutes of threshold and then straight to the ice. And that was really interesting. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think <clears throat> in there said from the end of his last effort on the bike to the start of his race was eight minutes. Eight minutes. Yep. So he had to wear his his racing suit. He couldn't on put it on. Up, could, didn't have time to change that. But he still got to get out of his riding shoes into yep. his skates, which probably could take four or five minutes. I would guess they don't look like they're particularly easy to get in uh -uh. and out of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've never worn a carbon fiber Olympic race skate, but and then get from wherever the bike is to the ringside. Yeah. He might have time to pee in the middle, like maybe a drink of water. But he was saying that that the the inability of having warm-up time on the ice was a huge part of the reason why he yes. came up with this on protocol warm-up and that's also really common in track cycling like when you go to a world cup or world championships you rarely warm up on the track you, you almost all your warm-up is on rollers uh-huh yeah it's unique to that i don't know i don't know if that's the case now with olympic level or world championship level mountain biking are you able to pre-ride the course before a short track or a cross country, or would you do that in the days prior and then the day of you can't ride it? Do you know? Uh, yeah, you, it depends on the event. You can sometimes have, it depends on how many 
divisions they're racing, how spread out it is, how much time right. they have for training. Um, you know, things change on a mountain bike course pretty frequently. So they almost always have to have a, a day of pre Just because the soil conditions are different. Yeah, for safety, and, yeah. safety and equipment set up. You know, make but, sure that ramp is on the other side of that bay rock, <laughs> for example. Yeah, something like that. Right. Within the Vanderpool thread. Within the Vanderpool thread, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But rollers are super common too, because mm -hmm. right? you're not going to be doing the high RPM, super. I mean, that's the difference between, well, I think the difference between, in some senses, riding uh, off-road and riding on the road, but for sure the difference between riding off-road and riding on rollers. Yeah. Off-road most of your effort is dictated by the terrain mm -hmm. uh, on the on a flat road or on the rollers, you dictate all of your effort. Right. So if you need right. to do something specific, it's going to this specific, if you wanted to have that protocol, mm -hmm. almost impossible to do on a mountain bike on the course. If that was your oh, warm up yeah, physiology. Sure. Right. No. Yeah. And, and I learned that years ago as a cross racer, like if I have an opportunity to pre-ride the course, which sometimes again, you do, and sometimes you don't, it depends on, whether you're at nationals or a bigger event or not, but sometimes there's other races going on and you can't pre-ride. But if I did have the opportunity to pre-ride a course, I never really counted it as part of my warm-up. It was pre-ride. I was just there to see the course. I wasn't doing efforts. I wasn't doing starts or sprints or tempo or any of this, you know, three by 30. Right. You're there to see the course. You take a lap, you see it, you look at the lines, you watch someone else go through a line, you figure out how to hop a barrier or whatever you're going to do or yeah. go around a corner. And then you go do your warm-up on the road somewhere. Or on that trainer, if you were really dialed in, right? If you had a program where <clears throat> your philosophy was your warm-up protocol needs to exactly dictate the race conditions, then maybe you could just do a hot lap for your warm-up. You could, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> it, it would be as you, probably almost as unique as his approach. Yeah. I'm really curious. It makes me interested to watch more speed skating and watch the World Cups. Mm the way he chose to limit his competition and do so much of his high intensity preparation yep. on his own. I mean, you know, I think it's the same. They have a world cup season. I know for cycling, a huge part of this high intensity, whether it's, you know, over threshold, whatever it is, one minute efforts, three second efforts or 30 minute efforts. Yeah. Like for cyclists, a lot of that volume is taken up by just actually what we have to do to race. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your, your high intensity stuff compared to Nils is a lot of racing with mm -hmm. some supplementation in, in intervals by comparison. Like he just said, I'm going to manage all of it. Right. I'm a race very little. Right. Cause this is what I think is going to work for me. Yep. Yep. So two points there. One is obviously he had the blessing of his national team to do that. Uh, like for the example, the year I made the Olympic team in 2004, I had no choice but to go through this massive pathway to make the team. Right. Which meant a so shit your, ton of travel. Your preparation long-term was kind of dictated by that. It had to be. And there were, and in some cases, I mean, this is a failing of like, this is an endless debate in the U S national team and all the selection committees, but you know, the, the U S team uniquely wants to have this open opportunity for athletes to qualify for the Olympic team. So there has to be a pathway. It's written in the Olympic charter, the U S Olympic charter. There has to be a pathway for any Tom or Susie to make the Olympic team. If they do all the right things. Now that pathway can be long and involve a lot of flaming hoops, but it's like, you got to earn some points and then you have to go to a camp and then you have to 
have this many points and you have to go to this World Cup and then be at this national camp and da da da. Depending on the year and the specific team, whether you're talking about mountain cross, road track, whatever. But that's basically the theme is there should be a pathway for any rider to qualify for the national team and theoretically eventually make it onto the world's team or the Olympic team. Um, the downside to that is that it requires all these flaming hoops for the athletes to jump through. And it really puts the goalpost for the athlete to make the team, not to win a gold medal. Right. And that probably doesn't hurt someone like Sarah Hammer, who was going to win a couple world titles anyway, because once she wins her first one, then she's kind of in the groove and she's established her dominance and she's going to get selected until she either retires or whatever is no longer fast enough to be competitive. But for an athlete who's like, well, I'll use myself as an example, someone who's maybe metal capable if things like really went perfect on the day of, that could screw me because I'm not Sarah Hammer. I wasn't that dominant in the in the sport, right? There are a lot of athletes, I'm just using myself as the easy example here, but there are a lot of athletes who are in that middle zone where if they performed perfectly on the day of the Olympics or World Championships, they could have come away with a medal. But because they peaked three months earlier for the U.S. Olympic trials or the World Championship selection camp, right? Then they, by the time they get to Worlds, they've already they've already been you know wrung out. Um, so in the case of Nils, he obviously had the luxury of knowing that he was on the team, so he could afford to avoid the World Cup season. He did do World Championships, I believe, this year and won. But he didn't have to do a whole bunch of qualifying stuff or a bunch of team camps. He maybe had to do a few minimum minimal bits of that. But he basically chose to ignore all of it and just train. And I also think that many times in my own racing adventures, I was convinced that it took me a while to figure this one out. Like if I pack up my bikes, spend a day packing up my bikes, and then a day in the in the airport, and then get to a race, and then I tune up, and then I go do this race for three days or two days or, or four days or five days. And then I pack all my stuff and then I flow home and I'm totally smashed and I have to taper on either on the beginning. And then I have to rest afterwards. I'll still have a net gain of fitness because of that four days or five days of racing. And what his argument is that most of the time that doesn't matter. You should just train <laughs> and keep training and keep the pedal on the gas, right. stay on the limit. Well, especially if you're approaching it the way he does with such phenomenal volumes, right? Right. Um, you're definitely always walking on the fence of, mm -hmm. of doing too much. And, you know, when you're in that point, a you know, a traumatic travel day on both ends and packing and that stress that always comes with travel, yep. that, that throws that balance out of whack of being able to digest that amount of training. Well, and I would argue that, um, he doesn't have anywhere near as much stress as I did because all he had to do was pack two pairs of skates. <laughs> <laughs> If you or, or who knows, who knows, they, they may have a, a whole suitcase full of skates too. I, they might have a whole suitcase full, <laughs> <laughs> but they have nowhere near the two track bikes, a road bike, four sets of wheels and yeah, all the yeah. other crap we had to haul around, which is yeah, just like, absolutely. and bikes are those things where you can literally fly halfway across the world and forget one bolt and you can't ride your bike. There's a lot of like really really minutiae yeah it's a, it's very it's very equipment intensive yeah and there are good there's two sides to that coin there are parts of it that are really fun yes and there are parts of it that are just like really make it a pain in the ass yes agreed so but, but i think what 
is interesting about that is that most bike racers, if they imagined a season where they just didn't compete or they competed once and they just trained like absolute maniacs for months on end, they would probably go nuts because well, you, you have, to, you would have to have, and we talked about this in the beginning, so much confidence mm-hmm. to not have that, that testing every week, you know, yeah. kind of yardstick. Oh, right. this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. Mm-hmm that well an external validation of where you're at rather than yep. the metrics you know the internal metrics that probably give you a much more accurate accurate idea of where you're at if you're listening yeah. to the whispers and well this is something that's unique to speed skating and also the parallels track racing if you have a velodrome and you're training for the individual pursuit for example which would be the most parallel example <clears throat> excuse me that you could equate this event to in cycling, probably if you're going to the track every day and you know, your own velodrome, you know, the atmospheric conditions, simply put the temperature, pressure, and humidity, you can know exactly where you are relative to the best riders in the world on any given workout year round. Now, in a cross country race, you can model the event. You could model the conditions and the weather for the cross country race, you know, and say, I'm going to have to make this much power up the climb for this many minutes, but then I'm going to have to have these surges and this acceleration and, and the model gets a lot more complex. You yeah. could, you can of course come up with the demands of the event and say, we have to make this many KJs and this power zone and blah, blah, blah. You might be wrong about that because the model's more complex, but the also model changes because it rains. the model changes because it rains yeah. or because you, um, now, when you're on the, when you're on the, here's the thing about it though, on the velodrome or in the speed skating rink, you know, the current world record and you know, the lap times he has to do in order to break that world record or be on world record pace. So it's, it's like a line in the sand. He could draw that's very, very clear, Yeah. but you really don't know how fast you have to go to do a world record on a brand new cross country course or short track course, because every course is unique. And so when you show up to the line, if you make assumptions about your own internal output, your power for this climb and that turn and that acceleration, it could be that someone else shows up and just goes way faster than you. Now that could have also happened in the speed skating race, but you have history as a precedent. You know, the fastest time to this point was a 1236 or whatever the previous record was. So, you know, if you ride a 1230, if you skate a 1230, you're going to beat the existing world record by six seconds. And it's, it's not very likely that anyone will go faster than you. You don't know that, but so there's more no, there's more certainty in preparation for a program like this, because when you went to the track, the skating rink, I'm sure they're smart enough to correct for little bits of differences in the ice and the other details. He knew exactly where he was and that's why he could afford not to race. Whereas you said, you want to go and have that weekly candy grab of like, Oh, I'm still beating this person or I felt really good. And I won this race or I got third in that race. And that's fine. Cause I'm nine months out from my goal. The other thing about it though, is that I think most cyclists just like to race and culturally it's part of our sport. Like, I mean, in a season, normally we would do a short track on Tuesdays and we do, we race most Saturdays and Sundays. If there was no mountain bike racing, you'd go do a road race or a road stage race. You do Gila or whatever. Right. Yeah. We raced a lot. Yeah. And, and we liked well, it. I, well, I, it's kind of important to like it. And, <laughs> and, and throughout his career, he, it seems like he went from as a junior, not liking it because yeah. of the, stress and anxiety that came along with it because mm-hmm. of the pressure he was putting on the outcomes Yep, to a point where he was more process focused about, I can choose to do a hundred K trail run. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't choose to win the gold medal mm-hmm. process orientation rather than outcome, outcome. orientation. Yeah. 
saves a ton of efficiency, like mm -hmm. mental and emotional efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but definitely much more refined effort than a mountain bike race or a cross race or a road race. Or like just yeah. way more variables, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, from like different courses, different types of athletes win on different courses on the road, mm -hmm. on mountain bike, on cross, mm -hmm. you know, different athletes win between one day and the next, because one day it's baked hard and dry. The next day it's muddy. And there's people that are better in, in right. those conditions, like exact same course, two mm -hmm. days apart, yep. completely different outcomes. Yep. So yeah, you're right. Um, that, that's an interesting part of his training program. And one, maybe one of the things that allowed something that's this specific, I just can't believe like all of these, I felt like the more laps I did at race pace. So the 32nd lap, mm -hmm. he just did reams and reams and reams of them. Mm -hmm. And he only had to go like tenths of a second over or under that for it to be like a premium effort, mm -hmm. you know, or a super subpar effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's the same on the track. You know, if you're on a fast track, equalizing for again, temperature and pressure and humidity, you doing 16 O's that's world record pace for the individual pursuit, right? You're doing 14 O's that's world. Well, I have to do the math on that, but approximately record pace for 4k team pursuit, depending on, did I say that right? Yeah. Individual for 16 O's. Uh, and so athletes know where they are relative to that time standard. Right. Um, and that's a hard place to live in because I've also had athletes who had themselves convinced that a certain bar of power was the only way they were going to win a race or, or be as good as they wanted to be or be in the group or whatever their goal was, whatever their specific outcome they had imagined. So they were telling themselves like, Oh, if my threshold isn't this many Watts, I shouldn't race or I'm going to get dropped or I'm not going to win or whatever. Right. And the problem with that mentality is that then you can go into every workout and all you do is stare at your power meter and you start doing an effort and you're immediately looking and it's like, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And in my experience, as soon as you have that mentality, you're going to really struggle because the second your power goes down, you feel as though you're working really hard because you are, you're doing an effort. It's so easy for that house of cards to crumble, right? Yeah. And it, and it imposes <laughs> limitations. Mm -hmm. Like as the athlete, you already have these bookends yep. of what's possible, yep. what's good, what's bad, all these judgments. Mm -hmm. And it prevents, you know, it prevents that. I think in a lot of cases that special day from happening where, you know, you did your threshold, just, you made a leap and your threshold was 20 Watts higher, higher yep, than yep. you've ever seen it. Right. And you let it happen because you didn't know it was 20 Watts higher. Mm -hmm. You just let it happen. Mm -hmm. So you're staring yep. at that head unit and yeah. it starts to go up there. You know, maybe you just back it off. Cause you're like, oh, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're right. Progress is very, very rarely linear. We tend to think of it like if we're going to inch up every time we do a workout, we're going to be 10 Watts higher. Right. Almost never works that way. Yeah. Usually you're 10 Watts worse for several weeks in a row. And then about the time you don't give a shit, all of a sudden you're like, wait, where'd that come from? Yeah. I just went 35 Watts faster than I've ever gone for that duration. Like I remember the first time I rode a five minute interval at 350 Watts, which is a million years ago is when I was really young, but I didn't believe it. I was like, there's no way I could do that much power. No way. <laughs> and I had to go out and then I went and did it again. I was like, oh my, I guess this thing's working right. I like zeroed it out and everything. 
That's but it was funny. that exact moment. I, yeah. I for like a whole year I'd been trying to break, you know, like three twelve, and then one day I just popped out three three fifty. I was like, whoa, damn! <laughs> and then you know, two years later, that was like I was out of shape when I was doing three fifty. That's how it worked. But so that brings me to another really good quote that I want to read from his document, and I titled this part "Hard Work Is Hard Work," and this goes to what we were just talking about about. When you, when you tell yourself that your, your numbers have to be at a certain point and you're a failure, if they're not, or you're never going to win, or you're never going to be good enough, or you're not going to stay in the group. That is of course a process focused mindset, uh, excuse me. It's an outcome focused mindset. Yeah. It's not process focused. And he expressly says this in the document that when on his hard days, he didn't question whether he wanted to skate. I'll leave, I'll read the quote. I held myself to a high standard and I rewarded myself properly and often. When I failed, I forgave myself and tried my best not to fail again. I never felt sorry for myself, no matter the hour, the wind, the rain, or the temperature. I volunteered to do this. I wanted it because it was hard, and throughout the training sessions, I tried to keep that in mind. I questioned my decision to be a speed skater a lot, but I didn't question it when I was suffering. Then I only got through it. That's the key sentence. I left the questioning for rest days. So... I think that's a really important point um, in a way to be a bit clever about your mentality that can lead you to success. And I, I equate this to a parallel line of thought I have when people are trying to lose weight or they have foods that they can't avoid eating, like they get addicted to. I tell them, look, you only need 30 seconds of discipline a week. 30 seconds of discipline is when you're in your car before you're about to walk in the grocery store. All you need to do is look in the mirror and say, I'm not going to buy these cookies no matter what, period. You go in the store, you do shopping, you buy your stuff, you don't buy the cookies. You don't have to worry about it for the next five or seven days because if they're not in the house, you can't eat them. But if you bring them home, then every night at 948, you're going to go, I kind of want to eat one of those cookies. I'll right. just have one. And then you have six and then you're like, <laughs> shit, <laughs> like we're all humans, yeah. right? Cookies are yummy. <clears throat> I like cookies. <clears throat> so if I was trying to be smart about my cookies and discipline, this is how I would handle it. And this is kind of what Niels is saying. He's saying that during the intervals, you have to partition your attention and focus on the process and just do the best you can at that moment. Just focus on doing the, the work. That's all it is, is work. Worry about the outcome or the performance later. Think about, man, this is the dumbest decision I ever made to become a speed skater or a bike rider and do all these intervals. Think about that on your easy days. Because right. you have better perspective. Yeah, and it kind of dovetails into his more is more philosophy. Right? Mm -hmm. You're not wasting headspace, wasting energy on something besides the only thing you're doing there. Yeah. Which is, you know, for him, busting out a handful of 29.5 laps. Right. You know? Right. Anything he's thinking about besides that, anything he's putting energy in besides that, it's not getting as much. It doesn't get It doesn't serve him at that moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have moments in your when you were at like at the lead end of your career where you were thinking like I'm crazy, I shouldn't be doing this that you can think of? Uh not not too often. I've always felt like it was a privilege, mm -hmm. you know, um, to be able to do that for a living, mm -hmm. be able to see the world, you know race bikes for and get paid for it when you'd like to race bikes yeah um you know there are times are hard and there is a 
part of that external motivation that we talked about that's part of the world of anything that's competitive really mm. i mean you're only as good as your last race and you feel like that and probably to a lesser degree people feel that way about you but you always think like what's coming in is just about the very last finish line that happens so yeah if it's great you're on cloud nine mm -hmm. you know if it's you know it was subpar you know then you're low Mm. Um, it's another part of the durability of like, you know, I'm mm. sure Vanderpool had a lot of races that he was disappointed with. I mean, mm -hmm. that's just the rhythm I, we talked about earlier. Nothing's linear, right? Not only this, this progress, mm -hmm. this trajectory, we want to make, we like to make things linear. Um, but nothing is, mm -hmm. it's a wave, you know, there's going to be peaks and drops, on every trajectory. There aren't many straight yeah. lines in nature. No, not a, maybe not a single one. If it's yeah. got, if you're talking a really, really straight line. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah, we're doing our best to put as many of those straight lines so that we can make sense of nature, but that's mm -hmm. a, that's a whole different topic. <laughs> <laughs> the human mind trying to cleave things the way we think is orderly and tidy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I love the simplicity of this program overall. I love the the singular myopic focus. I don't think that many athletes could perform a, a similar program in their lives. I mean, first of all, most people can't train 35 hours a week, but even professionals, he went so heavily into one specific tile, style of training that he gave up his explosivity. But I think we can say that the formula he used was obviously successful. So there's yeah. a lot of positive takeaways Two from gold that. Medals, Two gold medals, world record, world records, right? Um, one world record. Do you get the world? In, I don't know if he got the world record in the five k. I don't know if he. He definitely did in the ten k. Yeah. But I mean, still outstanding. And then I'll say the kind of cherry on top of the whole thing is he gave one of his gold medals to this Chinese woman. Did you hear about this? No. Okay. So okay, there's this Chinese author. I don't remember his name but he's an underground author who has written a lot of books talking openly about some of the human rights violations of the Chinese government and many other political topics. I haven't read any of the books or anything. I just read an article about this. And he was eventually detained by Chinese policemen and he's in jail probably for the rest of his life. And these books were like smuggled into China and people were reading them. So he's trying to get the word out about what's really happening. His daughter, I believe she lives in New York. So Niels traveled to New York and gave her one of his gold medals as an act of solidarity and a display of respect for her father who's speaking out against the Chinese government, well, which no, is pretty, I'd, I'd never even heard that story. It's pretty cool. Um, I'll find a good article about that and put a link to the show in the show notes about that too. So to me, that was also like, I mean, it, it had a big impact on me in a couple ways. One, I'll mention this too. He joked with the woman, he said, yeah, I mean, this really isn't that big a deal for me because I have two of these, so I can still have one to show to my grandma, <laughs> which I think is cool. Um, but I'll say that, uh, you know, in Athens in 2004, when I was at the Olympics, I attended the closing ceremonies and I went, you know, what they do is they get these big buses that go to the village and then you go to the ceremony. And so I jumped on the bus and I sat down next to this American woman. And I don't recall actually what team she was on, but whatever team it was, they had won a gold medal. So I started chatting with her. And I'm like, hey, that's great. You won, you know, congrats. And she asked me about my event and I told her how I did. 
And I was like, Hey, can I, you know, when you go to the ceremony, you wear your USA team, USA uniform, they give you that's like, um, mandatory for the, for each ceremony and whatever. And then if you win a medal, you wear your medal. It's just part of the thing. So I said, can I ask you a favor? And she was like, yeah. And I said, can I just hold your, your medal for a second? I just want to check it out. She was like, sure. So she took it off and handed it to me. And in that moment, it was this really powerful sort of dichotomy of experiences because on the one hand, this metal had this such immense significance, right? It's a symbol, a really powerful symbol. And of course she and her teammates were on the bus and they're just so jovial, probably, you know, one of the high points of their lives, probably the high points of all of their lives to that point, maybe not Mm -hmm. their entire lives, probably not, hopefully not, but you know, this insane moment of joy and, and all this accomplishment and work that had gone into it and all the blood and tears, I'm sure they had sacrificed to get to that point that almost anyone gets to when they win an Olympic gold medal, probably just about everyone. But on the other hand, I was holding this medal and it was no different than all the dinky, cheap medals that I had hanging in my garage on a rusty nail. You know, it was just a hunk of metal. Now, granted, this one probably had an extremely microscopically thin coating of actual gold on it. But other than that, it was just a chunk of metal with a ribbon on it. And I was so sort of taken aback by that, that duality of holding that metal and seeing the symbol of it and all the meaning and emotion that goes into it. But at the same time, it's just a physical object. And for me, that was fascinating. So when he just so um, valiantly gave this medal to this Chinese woman, this daughter of this author, um, I thought it was also, I thought it was kind of felt the same way about it. Like on the one hand, it was a powerful symbol for him to give this medal and sort of give the finger to the Chinese government in a way. That's what his sort of message was. I, I speaking for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, it's just a medal. And he had another one to show to his grandma anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's, it's an interesting part of, you know, racing to, to attain status, whether it's like a personal, like helps you shore yourself up personally, or if it's what gets you a contract and gets you paid, yeah, whatever it is, um, investing in that, uh, short term, I'm not even sure where I was going with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, did you have anything else you wanted to wrap up with? Any other profound thoughts about his training program? Mm, I, it's super interesting just because the way it moves the book in so far out on mm-hmm. kind of what the standard ideals are mm-hmm. for training. Mm-hmm. And it makes me, you know, even at this point, I'm so far out beyond my racing years, but it's it makes it interesting. Oh, maybe I'll try some really high volume stuff or more mm-hmm. diversity or whatever it is. Like, yeah. It, it changes the way people should look at their training for within our disciplines and endurance sports. Mm -hmm. I think it really opens the door to some unique evaluation Mm -hmm. to re-examine programs, maybe in some respects. Yeah. 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 I love the dichotomy between his, on the one hand, there's a, there's this very specific window where more is more and there's kind of unlimited amounts that will add value. Now that's with the, to underline that that's with the presupposition that you are biomechanically 
durable enough to handle that load right. and that your gut biome can handle all that food right. without collapse. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who do not qualify for that, but you know, within those limits, you might find that actually during the aerobic phase, if you were to apply some of those basic concepts, you could maybe get some really big gains possibly. Right. Um, that's, I think one takeaway for, for a lot of athletes, but also then I think the other big takeaways are that we, we run around doing things like VO2 tests and training camps and races that we think will add to our performance. But probably when you look from a very 30,000 foot view, the net of a lot of those things isn't useful. I mean, that's one thing he talks about too, is he doesn't do tests because he didn't need to, because he had his, his standard on the track. It's not quite the same for someone who's training for road racing, but on the other hand, all road racers have power meters. So we all kind of know where we are. And he also said he hated it. He hated it. Yeah. So that was, so he just does away with it and recognizes it doesn't serve him. So that's part of the minimum effective dose or the keep it simple, stupid principle, right? The kiss principle, which is like cut out, cleave the things that do not serve you, right? Just cut them away. And that's a really powerful tool. And I think a lot of athletes could benefit from that technique, cleaving. Yeah. He, and he talks about, you know, you focus on the parts of your training that make the biggest difference. Like, yes, like a lot of these tiny things, you know, really depending, depending on how much personal emotional energy you're putting into them. If it's a lot of investment for a really nuanced thing, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. And he, he boils everything down to skating is just a one legged squat. Yep. You know, yep. Perfect example. You yeah. know, and there's skaters that talk about, you know, feeling the ice and uh -huh. like all like the other end of the spectrum. Yes. Like this super nuance. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to a, a skater, um, who was, who was an athlete transitioning from speed skating to cycling. And it was just when roller, you know, rollerblade racing, like uh -huh. dry land skating was yep. becoming popular. And yep. we were talking about, is there going to be a crossover? Yeah. And this athlete was like, oh no, like ice skating on the ice is so nuanced. Like the, the yeah. roller skaters will never get that nuance and be competitive. Hmm. And that turned out to totally not be true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like those, right. those athletes totally, they crossed over with a right. lot of success. Right. So yeah, it's another, it's another opportunity a little bit like that to just like take a brand new look at your training for mm -hmm. whatever your sport is. Mm -hmm. There might be a lot of different ways around the block, Yeah, you know, to yeah. get to where you want to be to, with yeah. your preferred yeah. activity. So simultaneously, again, he has this paradox where he allowed himself great amounts of freedom in the aerobic phase to do other stuff like running and cycling. And that led him to his goal. But then when he was skating, he was myopically focused on ice only because he's, he talks about how he didn't do dry land training like a lot of the other skaters year mm -hmm. round because he said it would pollute his technique. He yeah. also acknowledged that not every other racer felt that way and that it didn't, it, you know, it was down to yeah. the individual, but he felt that it would, it would pollute his technique, I believe is the term he used. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. So yeah i don't know i mean you'd have yeah, to so interpret that didn't didn't dry land skate right land skate right didn't use a slide board I think right. those yep. are like super super common, common things yeah for speed skaters to spend yeah. hours and hours and hours on and the vast vast majority of his weight training was simply one-legged squats um he occasionally did max deadlift and and back squat every every few bits every few weeks or something like that so yeah. 
but also he got to the point where he could do two hours of one-legged squats. I know it's in, it's just insane. So I got to tell this story because I read the article, you know, several weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I got to try this. So I, he said he did his one-legged squats in five-minute blocks with one-minute rest. I managed to make it two five-minute blocks of continuous one-legged squats, so ten whole minutes. Granted, to be fair, he started out with 15 minute chunks when he was transitioning. I made it 10. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this was hard. It was a good workout. I felt like it was a very productive use of my time. Okay, cool. Um, wasn't that sore the next day. But then about 36 hours later, I was like full grandpa mode on the day stairs, two. like <laughs> holding on to the handrail to get down the stairs every day, just like preposterously sore in my glutes and hamstrings. <laughs> and then I'll say, that when I rode my bike, I also felt that soreness. So that tells me pretty simply that that it's applies to my cycling strength. Enough. It's specific enough. Yeah. Because if I'm sore, if I'm struggling to ride the bike with that soreness, now if you're really sore, but then you get on the bike, you don't really notice it. And it's like, hmm, probably not that sport specific. Yeah. But doing a one-legged squat with good form and building the proper technique without injuring yourself requires a lot of biomechanical durability. Yeah. So. And, and especially that volume with another order of magnitude when you're looking at those types of two hours. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, good stuff. Uh, thanks man. Thanks for sitting down with me and sharing some thoughts. Yeah. Thanks. It's a super interesting kind of injection into the cycling industry from another sport from the Mm -hmm. Olympic games. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you found this, his story as interesting as I did. Yeah. Yeah. Super good stuff. Right on till the next one. Bye. (laughs) Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point, and there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse, because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about, and while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. 
the purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.